Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, Senior Editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. So May is Electrical Safety Month, and the danger of electrical hazards remains a constant concern in workplaces nationwide. In fact, electrocution remains one of the four leading causes of workplace deaths in the construction industry, commonly called the Fatal Four by OSHA, with approximately 9% of deaths in the workplace being caused by electrocution. In this episode, sponsored by AVO Training Institute, we're marking Electrical Safety Month with an expert who can give us some insight into the issues surrounding electrical safety, from common hazards to personal protective equipment to strategies for keeping employees safe around electricity. Joining us today on EHS on Tap is Ralph Parrott, AVO Senior Instructional Designer and Senior Training Instructor. Ralph is a U.S. Navy veteran with over 11 years of professional experience relating to electrical safety and maintenance training. He started working as a senior training instructor for AVO Training Institute in 2017 and is now also a senior instructional designer as well. Ralph has extensive knowledge of the maintenance, repair, and troubleshooting for control and instrumentation, relay logic systems, ABB control systems, central control station programs, and other various types of equipment. He has also developed and taught curriculum covering theory, operation, maintenance, and safety of engineering systems. So Ralph, thank you so much for joining us today on EHS on Tap. Uh, thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. We're glad to have you. So let's start off with some of the basics here. What are the hazards associated with electricity? Uh, the hazards in regards to electricity is going to be uh, shock, arc flash, and arc blast. So what are the difference between those kinds of hazards? So with an electrical shock, this is going to occur whenever uh, a human body is put in, uh, put in the circuit with an energized source, and that's where we're going to feel the uh, energy passing through our body. Uh, when it comes to arc flash, this is, this is actually the physical release of that energy uh, in the form of an arc. And that's going to uh, be very comparable to lightning. Mm. Uh, you can also compare the same thing to uh, the method in which a spark plug works. And with an arc blast, this is uh, actually a byproduct of the arc itself. Uh, it's going to be the pressure that's created by that sudden release of energy uh, from the electric circuit. Okay. So these are varying levels of severity too. Shock is the mildest and an arc blast is the, is the uh, strongest? Uh, no, actually, it all is going to depend uh, the placement of the individual. Okay. So an, an electrical shock can actually uh, create an arc incident, which then leads to your flash and your blast. Mm. Uh, linemen actually experience uh, flashover is the terminology that they use. Uh, this is not uh, due to an electrical shock. It's just the uh, energy being released through the air that they call it a flashover. It's an arc flash event mm -hmm. to where they're exposed to high, uh, high levels of heat mm -hmm. and could possibly have that blast effect as well, all depending on the energy that the source's energy that they're dealing with. Okay. So I imagine that uh, with these you know, hazards being so... Uh so dangerous, there's a lot of training involved. So are electrical technicians the only ones that really need to attend electrical safety training, or is it something that really should be rolled out to multiple employees? 
So the, the short answer for our technicians, the only ones that need to be trained, that's an absolute hard no. Right. Okay. Uh, the explanation for that is uh, your entities like OSHA and the NFPA, they mandate that employers provide a safe work environment for all of the employees who could be exposed to the hazards of electricity. Okay. So truly, uh, in order to do that, uh, in order to provide that safe environment, the employer also has to be knowledgeable and aware of the hazards so that they can identify those. Mm-hmm. And then moving forward from that, uh, putting in methods to eliminate or limit either the hazard itself uh, or they look at uh, the severity of the injuries that could be caused so we can implement personal protective equipment to uh, try and decrease the severity of damages caused to a person who would be exposed to an electrical shock, arc flash, or blast. So uh, it, it does every employee, should they at least be aware of the hazards or do they need some more in-depth training as well? So the biggest thing that, uh, and I typically don't like to answer safety questions by directly quoting from a publication, but this mm-hmm. is one of those areas that I do pull f- directly from, and that's uh, NFPA 70E section 105.3 A and B. And this is really discussing the responsibilities of the employer and the employees. So it says that the employer shall have the following responsibilities, and that is establish, document, and implement safety-related work practices and procedures required by this document, the NFPA 70E. And that's gonna cover, those safety-related work practices are gonna cover the personal protective equipment that are going to be issued or provided to the employees exposed to those hazards. And then they're also to provide employees with training in the employer's safety-related work practices and procedures. So it's not just training for those exposed, but it should also be uh, provided to anybody, any person that is in that industry or in that workplace so that they can identify when a method of safety is being used properly and improperly. Mm, Okay. Because uh, in the second part of that, this covers the, the employee and that they shall comply with those work practices and procedures provided by the employer. Okay. So let's say that, uh, that I'm a mechanic working at a manufacturing plant. So I'm not an electrical technician. I'm just an employee at a manufacturing plant. And I was told that I had to stay away from an electrical work area. So that's something that I need to comply with. So how far away must I stay? So when you get into the publication, 70E is going to have a set of tables used to determine uh, approach boundaries is two uh, boundaries that we talk about when it comes to uh, really for electrical shock are going to be your approach boundaries. You have your limited approach boundary, uh, which is going to be uh applicable to your non-electrical trades or non-electrical personnel, so unqualified personnel is the way that the 70E is going to write that. And then you have a restricted approach boundary. That's for your qualified electricians. Okay. And at first, your your limited approach boundary is going to be the one that an unqualified or mechanic in this case would follow. Now that the last boundary, though, your arc flash boundary, Mm. this has to deal with the distance you have to be from that energy source uh, to where if there was an arc flash event that the temperature rise felt at that point 
would be below a specific value, mm. which that distance can absolutely be farther out than the limited approach boundary. So now the boundary's been pushed out even farther. Okay. So, and that's uh, really arc flash safety has picked up over the last, I'd say, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So now you see a lot of companies where they're, where, where they're issuing what they call daily wear, and that is a set cal rating. And your most popular numbers are going to be eight or nine cal uh, rating, and that's just the level of heat or arc flash energy that those pieces of material can handle to help prevent the user from being burnt. Okay. So are we talking about like uh, like gloves in, in, that have these this material in it? Well, your daily wear is actually going to consist of anything you normally put on to go out in public. Oh, okay. Uh, so pants, shirts, um, and including your shoes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, there are parts in the NFPA 70 that discuss boots, uh, but we really focus on the pants and shirts. This is typically where all the violations occur. Mm. Uh, one common violation when it comes to the wearing of daily wear is uh, shirts are unbuttoned. They're not tucked in. Mm. Uh, and what that does is that uh, opens the individual up for a higher risk of injury if an arc flash, arc blast event does occur. Okay. So those boundaries that you were just talking about, are these? Uh, is it required that they be clearly marked within a workplace where these various boundaries are? Absolutely. Whenever an, uh, whenever electricians are going to be setting up a, a work environment where they're going to be dealing with these hazards directly, they have to set up at a bare minimum that outermost boundary. And that's that limited approach boundary to where uh, persons don't enter freely. Now, NFPA 70E gives different methods of creating a barrier. And that could be with a flashing light. Mm-hmm. That could be with a tape similar to like a a scene tape that police use. Mm -hmm. Um, It could also be a person that is standing there telling people to stay out. Okay. Now, the biggest thing with the barriers, though, is that this goes into the training also. If whatever method is being used, then all personnel should be knowledgeable or trained on what that barrier is so then they can identify, okay, I'm not supposed to go in there. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to, you know, working with just uh, directly with electricity and, you, you know, you're dealing with hazards all the time. Uh, electrical gloves, you know, we hear a lot about gloves as a form of PPE with electricity. So how are they, what sort of gloves are we talking about here and how are they tested? So electrical gloves are made at specific uh, requirements so that What we're trying to do here is we're trying to increase the ohmic value of the person that could be exposed to an energized source. Okay. So really your gloves is your first line of defense Mm -hmm. to prevent electrical shock. Now, you did ask earlier if gloves are a part of your daily wear, Mm -hmm. uh, but if that was really in regards to the arc flash rating, these do have to be rated for an arc flash. Mm. Um, So the gloves, they do have to be tested. And they'll be, when they have been issued, uh, they would have already been electrically tested. And then at the point of issue, every six months, they have to be electrically tested again. And this is to make sure that the dielectric that's used, that rubber compound, Mm -hmm. isn't breaking down over time, which would allow for that electricity to pass through the glove and into the person that we're trying to protect. Okay. So the rubber gloves, then, they, they need to be inspected uh, from time to time, 
correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. So some folks might be like, well, I have leather protectors on, on the gloves. Why, why, why do I need to bother inspecting the rubber, right? So uh, what, what do you have to say about that? Well, yes, uh, they are electrically tested every six months. However, uh, through use, you're going to have, you're going to put stress on those gloves. Mm -hmm. And in accordance with a lot of entities, you're going to see that uh, your electrical gloves are required to be inspected before each day's use. Mm -hmm. It also says that if there's ever been a moment where those gloves were exposed to a hazardous environment, that you should perform the test again. Now, that inspection is going to include an air test, which basically you're going to trap air inside the glove and make sure that it doesn't escape. Mm. If you have air escaping the glove, then you have a hole. If you have a hole, you do not have adequate protection. Right. Uh, when it comes to the leather protectors, I know we, I think you brought that up too. Mm -hmm. Even though we have the leather protectors to protect those rubber gloves, that stress can still occur. Mm. Uh, typically, say you had the perfect situation where the glove doesn't experience any unforeseen issues like chemical exposure or left out in the sun for six months straight or things like that. Typically, your high stress points is going to be found between the fingers. Oh, like in the webbing? Yes. Mm. Uh, so that stress point is going to create a weak point where, where that ozone cracking or an ease of puncturing can occur. And say if you take a sharp enough object that is energized, it can pierce through the leather glove and through the rubber glove, and now you're exposed no different than if you're not wearing a rubber glove. So that's why these uh, inspections that you do before each day is used, which I try to tell folks you should do as much as possible because we tend to abuse the gloves. Mm -hmm. uh, that just, it keeps you safer. Absolutely. So are, are you required to wear leather gloves over electrical gloves, you know, for some extra protection? Well, as far as a requirement goes, the set, this is one of those places where like OSHA and 70E will do things like you shall never do this, uh -huh. but, but yeah, but, and it's always kind of funny because whenever we're in a training atmosphere, we always tell people, if you see shall, then that means you cannot deviate from this. And then the next sentence says, but, and then here you go. Mm -hmm. So technically you are not required to wear leather protectors over gloves. Mm -hmm. However, and this is your hard butt here, right. you can remove the leather protectors if, and only if for two things. And that is if you know that there is no danger of cutting the electrical glove mm -hmm. and you have to derate the glove's rating. So like for a, a double zero glove, you would actually cut that in half. So it would typically be rated at 500 volts AC. You would now rate that glove at 250 volts AC. Okay. Then for all other classes of gloves, so zero, one, two, three, and four, you actually have to drop those a class. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a class one glove rated at 7,500 volts AC, if used without a leather protector, would have to be derated to a class zero glove, which is now rated at 1,000 volts AC. So it's quite a dramatic change going from the double zero even to a class one. Mm. So when you derate a glove, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not familiar with a lot of electrical safety issues. It's like when you derate a glove, that means that the risk of the hazard becomes higher for the employee, correct? 
Uh, so what they're doing here is as your class of glove goes up, mm -hmm. so you start at your double zero, that's your lowest voltage rated glove class, mm -hmm. and you go up zero, 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 one, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. So as you increase that class, then the thickness of the glove is also going to increase, and the gauntlet or the cuff mm -hmm. where the glove comes from the hands up to, uh, say, just beyond your wrist for a class uh, zero, zero, when a class four would actually come up at about to the elbow. Oh, wow. Okay. So as we're derating the gloves, what the whole reason typically why people don't want to have the leather protectors on is to gain dexterity so they can get more movement out of their fingers. Right. And sometimes the leather protectors, you sacrifice dexterity to maintain protection. So one of the issues is, uh, say I want to use, I'm in a class three uh, glove, but I don't want to use the leather protectors. Well, I have to wear a class four. For anybody who's worn a class four, I don't personally feel that you're gaining too much dexterity out of that just purely because of the thickness of the rubber glove. Okay. So with everything that you've seen, you know, working with electrical hazards, what is, what's the best way to keep personnel safe during an, any task that, re, that requires coming into contact with electricity? So the best place to start is going to be to identify the hazards that the employers are going to, the employees, excuse me, are going to be exposed to. Mm -hmm. Then the likelihood of those hazards becoming an issue and the severity, if that were to occur, are the starting points for every single evolution. Once you've found those three items, you can then analyze how to eliminate or reduce the hazard mm -hmm. or, or the likelihood or the severity of injury. All of this can be done. So by eliminating the hazard, you can engineer it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so by design, uh, how we can remote operate equipment to put it into a de-energized state, that would eliminate the need for uh, arc flash as far as safety for, for personnel. And also uh, what that would do for us too is we would be able to, uh, that would create distance between the operator, whoever's operating that breaker and the point where an arc flash event could occur. So now we've eliminated the likelihood of them being exposed to the hazard. Mm. Then the last would be a severity. Say we can't remote operate the breaker, so we have to do it locally. Well, to decrease the severity of injuries, now we start issuing PPE like arc flash gear. Mm. This type of gear is going to bring us to a whole new level of rating than our daily wear. This is where we'll start seeing arc flash suits where it's pants, possibly even uh, like overalls, a coat or jacket, and a hood with a visor. Mm -hmm. uh, so that way what we're doing is, is because we couldn't eliminate the hazard or prevent the likelihood, now we're going to protect the employee as best as we can. Now, before all of this even happens, before that employee is ever put in front of that uh, or in that position, a pre-job briefing has to be conducted. That is required. Mm. This is in order to inform the employee or employees who are going to be exposed to those hazards. So they'll be able to know the hazards they're getting exposed to. And not only that, but the methods that are going to be put in place to eliminate or reduce the risks associated with the task. So really, I would say in, in my professional opinion, uh, communication and transparencies or transparency is going to take companies a long way in helping to keep their employees safe. 
Absolutely. Educating your employees as to why the safe practices are being implemented, but then also demonstrating those safe practices from the top down. Mm. Nothing is going to kill a safety program quicker than a technician who sees, say, a lead mechanic, a lead electrician, a supervisor, a department head, an office individual who is clearly violating safety protocol. Absolutely. So before we sign off, uh, you've been a trainer for a long time. Uh, could, could we get some of your thoughts on the importance of Electrical Safety Month? You know, uh, what, what would you communicate to our listeners that's just, you know, some really important things to remember regarding these hazards? So the, I would say the biggest thing when it comes to electrical training and the importance of this Electrical Safety Month is this is really one of those areas and that one of these forms of energy that not our general populace is not very aware of the hazards that are dealt with in this industry. Right. And unfortunately, and uh, you mentioned the 9% of all fatalities happening like that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most common places of injury is in the home. Mm. Uh, we see a lot of individuals in the, in the, at their home. And this is not just saying people who are not electricians. This is in electricians also are put in this too, because we get too complacent when it comes to working around these, this energy mm. and it can lead to fatalities like that. Uh, what AVO training Institute specializes in is we're going to target, uh, your big violators or big users of electrical safety, your industrial plants, utilities, and construction companies all come through us and we're able to educate them. And I've had folks come through a class of mine who've been doing this work for 30 years and they they had heard of, you know, arc flash or arc blast, but they'd never really understood what that meant. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of companies, they don't seek out training until a fatality happens. Mm. Now, I'm not going to name names, but we actually have a class set up for a specific company where we go to their facility and we give them training for their site. Uh, because about 10 or 15 years ago, they had an on-site fatality where they lost an employee. Mm. So whenever you have an incident like that happening, whether it's a fatality or it's a near miss, if it's reported to OSHA, which it should, uh -huh. then OSHA can come in and they have been known to do this. They'll do an investigation. They'll find the discrepancies and they will find the company. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, they'll come in and point out the shortfallings and then they'll ask for a check. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So definitely something to remain aware of, whether you're in the home or at the workplace. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, one of the biggest things with electrical safety is, you know, have respect for it and those who are working with it. You know, early we were talking about barriers. Uh, one of my biggest things for folks is, you know, we need to respect the barrier no matter which side we're on. Because if you're on the outside, that barrier is there not just for my safety. It's there for the safety of the individuals inside of that barrier. Definitely. Well, excellent. I mean, this information will help everyone out there in our audience have an even safer Electrical Safety Month at their workplaces this May. So thank you again, Ralph, for taking the time to talk with us today on EHS on Tap. Absolutely. I'm glad you had me and glad we had the opportunity to do this. Absolutely. We were gr glad to have you. So we'd also like to thank AVO Training Institute for sponsoring today's episode. 
To our listeners, be sure to keep an eye out for new episodes of EHS on Tap and keep reading the EHS Daily Advisor to stay on top of your safety and environmental compliance obligations, get the latest and best practices, and keep your finger on the pulse of all things related to the EHS industry. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap.